Uh, I have this quote in my office. I've had it in my office, my home office, for like 20 plus years now. It's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. It says this, Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. If you guys could say that with me. I think it's up there. Do the thing we fear, and the death of fear is certain. One more time together. Do the thing we fear, and the death of fear is certain. Do, do we believe that's true? In our, in our own lives, has that been, has that, that been has stepping into something that we're afraid of, is that the only way to eliminate um, the fear? Do the thing we fear, and the death of fear is certain. And maybe the, the question before that, is it true? Maybe what are we afraid of, and what do we fear? And at the risk of losing my man card forever, I'm going to share with you out loud a couple of things that, that, that I fear. Um, for, number one, I, I don't like snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. Any, any snake fears out there? And, and it, it's not even like the rattlesnakes. I mean, rattlesnakes, they take fear to a whole nother level, but it's the garter bull snake type that scare me. Uh, and if you happen to be in my neighborhood while I'm cutting the lawn and I encounter one of these snakes in my backyard, again, it's not a rattlesnake, it's a garter snake or a bull snake, you, you will hear this pitiful scream whimper thing. And, and I'm way too embarrassed to share with you what it sounds like, but my, my kids and my wife, they know the sound. And they'll hear me cutting the lawn in the backyard. Everything shuts down, and they hear this sound, and they'll say, oh, that's seen a snake. Um, but my other, my other fear, the second thing, I don't like heights. Uh, I'm afraid of heights. Any, any people afraid of heights? Um, and uh, I haven't always been afraid of heights. It just seems the older I've gotten, me and heights just don't get along too well. I, six-foot stepladder is about as high as I want to go now. Um, Cindy, my wife, who's here, she puts up the Christmas lights on the roof. I'm not proud of that, but, but I do hold the ladder. I do hold the ladder for her. <laughs> oh, it, sweetie, we've got to take those lights down sometime soon. <laughs> um, that, that Emerson quote, Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. Maybe I could work through my fear of snakes and heights if I could do some type of snake height intervention. You know, like if I could become a snake handler or a roofer for like two months. Maybe I could work through my fears of that. I don't know. Maybe. Do the thing we fear, and the death of fear is certain. And maybe that quote isn't good for snakes and heights, but but is it true for other things we fear? This is audience participation and our online participation as well. What, what are some of the things, what are, and this is audience participation, or I'm going to stand here and look like a, uh, like a nut, nut cake for a while. What are some of the things that we fear? What are some of the things we're afraid of? And, and maybe not what we're afraid of, but like somebody like in our row, what they're afraid of, or somebody back home, what they're afraid of, or maybe you know, as a community, what we're afraid of, or as a church, or as a family. Some, some things we're afraid of. Spiders. What was the other one? Change. Change. Yes, change is a big one. Spiders. Change. What, what else are we afraid of? Public speaking. <laughs> you nailed me on that one. No. Oh, two of the things, I'm honest, two of the things when I went into uh, training to be a pastor, I, I, feared, I feared public speaking, I feared this, and I feared um, dealing with death. Now I do this, and I deal with death a lot. So um, maybe, maybe it's maybe that thing, do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. Other things you fear, other things we fear. Lying? Lying? Yes, yes, yes. Let, let me share, you know, just as I, as I brainstorm, um, I, I have a journal, and I just write the things, some of the things that I think we fear. Wildfires. 
you know, after last weekend, um, the Marshall Fire, COVID, the next variant, crazy drivers, or driving at night, loss of independence, or job loss, or finances, our kids or our grandkids, their safety and health and their well-being, upcoming surgery, or treatment for cancer, or dying, or loss of a spouse, or political and social unrest, health, mental and physical and spiritual health, loneliness, a marriage that's on the rocks, bad guys and the boogeyman, or being a Broncos fan, and maybe that's, maybe that's not a fear, maybe that's a punishment for us. <laughs> oh. we, we fear all kinds of things, don't we? We fear way more than snakes and, and heights. And maybe, maybe we just need to acknowledge that we're all a little scared of something. Less so, I believe, when we're together. Less so when we're together as a family, or as a church, or as a community. One of the scriptures, before I, I go into the, the message and into the chosen series, I want to I just share this promise. This is from 2 Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. If you guys would just bow your heads, let me pray us in. Um, oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray your presence be with us this morning. And Lord, I pray that we can be still enough to hear your word through the stories, through the stories of the chosen, through the stories of the gospel, through the stories that I'll share. Lord, none of it really affects us until it rubs up against our stories. And Lord, I pray the stories that we'll share will touch the stories of the people right here. And Lord, just be with us this morning. Lord, I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, again, we're starting a new series this morning. It's an eight-week series today based on the TV series called The Chosen. I'll share a little bit more at the end of service how, if you haven't seen it and if you want to see it, there will be multiple ways to see it. Um, but I want, us to, um, I want us to wrestle with this morning. What does it mean to be chosen? And specifically, what does it mean to be called? And I want to share with you guys just a short clip from the first episode, season one, of the chosen, if you guys would watch this. Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, right. 
Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Come now. I want to hear you sing. I want to hear your pretty voice. Come. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. sleep. Her dad is outside the tent and the little girl Mary, who we would later come to know as Mary of Magdala, she's scared. And her dad asks the little girl, of what? And little Mary says, I don't know. And dad says, what do, you, what do we do when we are scared? And the little girl says, we say the words, yes, Adonai's words, God's words from the prophet Isaiah. And these are the words Dad starts to share with them. Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Then the dad breaks, and he asks little Mary to say the words, and she does. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. If I, got, if I could have you guys just repeat that last part with me together. Fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And let's fuss with that Isaiah text some and back it into the chosen story. What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be called? To be called by name. And remember, this is God saying this, fear not, for, you, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. What does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be chosen? And this calling is from God. Point number one, I want to start this out by just saying this clearly. This being called by God has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with God. This being called by God has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with God. We have to admit we live in a world where we often are called to compete, to be the best, to hopefully be the one that's chosen, to make the team or get the job or, or win the girl. There's team tryouts. And once we make the team, there's often position tryouts. Not everybody can be the quarterback or the shortstop or the, the head cheerleader. And there's show and choir auditions. Who gets, who gets the parts? Who gets what parts? There's job interviews, and you're just another resume in the pile competing against all the other resumes. There's competition to get into the best school, the best program at the school. I have a niece that's training to be a doctor, and that's a whole other level of competition. My daughter, Sarah, was trying to explain to me the other night the concept behind The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Um, <laughs> two crazy TV shows, some 30 gals or 30 guys competing to get the one bachelor or the one bachelorette's attention. Lots of drama. I guess it makes for good TV series. Sounds horrible to me. Um, anybody honest enough to say they watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? No honest people in this. Okay, back in the... <laughs> Thank you, Vicki. Um, Dating apps, um, competing for someone's attention. And both of our kids, both of our kids, adult kids, have entered into that world some. It's scary. Cindy and I, we met the old-fashioned way. We met outside of a bar in downtown Denver. Um, 
my wife did not edit this today, so I, anything that said that's, <laughs> that should have probably been taken out, she would have taken that right out. Um, my sister is the girls' tennis coach at a high school outside of Atlanta. She called me Wednesday night while I was working on this message. That afternoon, they had to make cuts for the team. 18 kids tried out. There were 12 spots. Six young girls went home sad that night. They were not called. They were not chosen. They were told, maybe not this many words or not, that they were not good enough. We are not competing to be chosen or called by God. God just chooses us, all of us, everyone in this room. The arrow is always down from God to us, not the other way, from us to God. And this might be hard for us to get our heads and hearts around, but God chose us before we were even born and way before we ever tried to get our acts together. From Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Know this, regardless of how you might feel right now, God, don't make no junk. God doesn't make junk. From Ephesians 2 to remind us all, it's not a competitive thing with God or based on how much we do for God. I quote this from Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved, a.k.a. chosen, a.k.a. called. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We have been chosen because of God's grace and mercy. We, we don't earn it, it just is. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. And I've heard folks say, I'll come back to church once I get my act together. No. God knows we're all knuckleheads, um, for all have sinned. From Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God calls us to come back in our brokenness, in our humanness, it's so what The Chosen is all about, this series, this, this powerful series. It, 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 um, if we think the folks in the Bible are perfect, it breaks all of those claims. They, they, these are real people just like us, broken, sinful, hurting people who don't have their acts together, and God chose them. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Point number one again, this being called has nothing to do with us. Our performance, our goodness, it has everything to do with God and God's love for us. Point number two, we're all afraid of something. Um, the little girl, Mary of Magdala, in the video clip, she can't sleep, she's afraid. She doesn't even know what she's afraid of. Fear, if we're honest, we're all afraid of something. And we live in a world that's often driven by fear. And maybe it's snakes. Maybe it's heights. Fill in the blank. From the movie, grown-up Mary of Magdala, um, she is scared. She's an adult now. She's scared, and she's scary. Something has possessed her. And Luke's gospel tells us that Mary Magdala was possessed by seven demons. The chosen story shares with us a scene almost from a horror movie, from if you've ever seen the, if you grew up, way back when, like me, and maybe watched The Exorcist. She has crazy eyes and violent outbursts and talks in a voice that is not her own. And the Roman guards are even afraid of her. And Nicodemus, the well-regarded Pharisee, a holy man, was afraid of her. Mary Magdala, during her lucid times, she tries to lean on her faith. 
She tries to lean on those words her father taught her when she was afraid as a little girl. But those words, fear not, fear not, fear not, seem to have lost their power. And Mary Magdala, in her darkest moments, she tears to pieces the scripture that she has kept in her heart in, in physically since she was a little girl with her father. The one she would read when she was afraid. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. But stuff happened to Mary Magdala. Life happened. The movie takes some license in sharing this part just briefly. But many of us can relate at some level. Life is cruising along, and then the wheels fall off. We never saw it coming. And life is never the same again. And these words from Isaiah, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Her faith, Mary Magdalene's faith in those words that used to comfort her for a season, Mary can't even read those words now, and in frustration she tears the scripture into, into little pieces. She's at her lowest point for the movie. She goes and tells a friend, she says, it's getting worse. And this friend tells her he's here for her. Even if we have to go to hell and back, we're, I'm here for you. And he tries to help her and comfort her with words and with some type of home brew, but nothing works. And the scene breaks. And Mary, is, Mary Magdala is at the edge now. Physically, she, she's come to the edge of this high cliff overlooking this, these rocks and water. It's like 200 feet high. She's at the edge too, metaphorically and mentally. She just wants to escape the torture that is within her. She keeps pounding her head. She throws her torn up scriptures over the edge. One more step, and for her, it's all over. But something catches her eye. She stops. Maybe it's just a bird. Maybe it's God or the Holy Spirit of God calling to her, but she steps away from the edge. She backs off the cliff. Another character that this first episode brings up is Nicodemus. Another character from the Gospels, he's in this chosen story too. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher of teachers, a strong and esteemed leader of the Jewish people. He had power. He was confident and cocky in his faith and in his position. But in this episode of The Chosen, he becomes afraid too. He's asked to see if he can do some type of exorcism with this crazed lady, Mary of Magdala. And he tries. But this is way, 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 way over his head. He swings hard, but he misses. And then he begins to doubt and question his own faith, his own sense of calling, and then he shares these questions with his wife. And Nicodemus' wife, in response to those questions, says, You do not have questions. You have answers. You have authority. You, you bring clarity, not confusion. Nicodemus' wife is concerned with their position, with, with these questions that Nicodemus has. She's afraid, too. That all they have, all the status they have, all the earthly comforts, all the privilege that comes with Nicodemus' position, if he shows weakness or doubt, it could all slip away. No, 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 no. There's a scene when Nicodemus takes his wife and asks her to look at, look at themselves in this blurry mirror. What do you see, he says. She says, just a blurry picture through a bad mirror. Then Nicodemus honestly says this. Some, sometimes... 
Sometimes I wonder if what we can know of Adonai, of God and the law, if it's just as blurred. What if we're not seeing the whole picture? What if it's more beautiful and more strange than we could ever imagine? Years later, St. Paul picks this up. For now we see only dimly through the mirror. Then we shall someday see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I should know fully, even as I am fully known. And Nicodemus, he has these questions, he has these thoughts. And Nicodemus' wife dismisses them. She says, that, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It might even be blasphemy. It could get us kicked out of our position. Nicodemus, trying to justify what he's feeling, he says, a man is free to question what's in his heart. But his wife shuts it down. Then leave it in your heart. No more questions. We're often told to squash the fear, move past the uncertainty and doubt, pretend it doesn't exist. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. FUD is the technical term. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But maybe, just maybe, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Maybe instead of ignoring it or running from it or trying to numb it, with God's help, we turn around and face it head on. Maybe that's where our encounters with the divine happen. And I love this quote from Brene Brown. Running away from the pain and anxiety is way more risky than leaning in and locking eyes with it. Running away from the pain and anxiety is way more risky than leaning in and locking eyes with it. Leads me to point number three. Facing our fears, facing our demons can be the jump start to our faith journey. One of our kids' favorite books growing up was this kid's book called um, Going on a Bear Hunt. Maybe some of you have read that with your kids. Uh, it was about this family going on a bear hunt, and um, they would encounter these obstacles, and you know, they were not afraid. They were, you know, uh, it was a beautiful day, and they would encounter these, these swamps and forests and snowstorms, and they would always say, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we've got to go through it. And I'll often share with folks around here, especially our grief share folks um, that are going through loss or through grief and mourning, as much as we want to move past our grief or ignore it, you have to face it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it. And I've shared this before with some of you folks. You know, as painful as grief and sorrow and loss can be, oftentimes it's, it's there that there's an intimacy with God that we can, ex- that we can only experience in the valley that we can never experience on the mountaintop. And I believe the same thing can be true when we're facing our fears, when we're facing our demons. And I know we could probably, Pastor Ike and I could probably do a year-long sermon series just on faith and fear. But I just want to quickly touch on these things and bring us back. I know we still have Christmas lights up at our house, but probably most of you have taken them down. But I want to, I want to go back to, to the Christmas story that we celebrated two weeks ago. And I borrow these thoughts from um, Scott Erickson, he's a gifted writer and, and artist and speaker from his book called Honest Advent. And Scott shares this thought, that instead of saying Merry Christmas as a greeting at Christmas time, we say these words, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And Scott points out that at every key point in the Christmas story, the divine breaks in and says, do not be afraid. Zechariah, an old man at this time, his wife Elizabeth, they never could have kids. 
An angel appears to Zechariah while he's in the temple. And the text says he was startled and then gripped with fear. The angel says to him, do not be afraid. Then he's told of this miracle that Elizabeth, his elderly wife, is going to have a child, and that child will prepare the way for Jesus. That child will, become, will come to be known as John the Baptist. Zechariah, do not be afraid. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus-to-be, when the angel Gabriel first appears to her, before she's told she's going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the angel Gabriel tells her, Mary, do not be afraid. And then Joseph, engaged to, to Mary, finds out she's pregnant, wanting to avoid all that comes with that, goes about a quiet separation. Let's just move on. Nobody needs to know about this. But in a dream, an angel of the Lord appears to him before he's told the truth about Mary's pregnancy. He's told by the angel, Joseph, do not be afraid. And lastly, the shepherds. That first Christmas night, an angel of the Lord appears to them and they were terrified before the angel shares with them that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. The angel tells those shepherds, shepherds, do not be afraid. Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, they all face their fears head on, and then they encounter the divine. And just a quick aside, of all these Christmas story encounters with the divine, with the angels, Mary, to me, seems the most calm. The text says she's, she's greatly troubled. But the other guys, they, they all go into full panic mode. Um, and I think there's a lesson somewhere in there for us guys, but I'm going to ignore it for now, okay? Okay. Um, I do want to point out that these folks chosen to be a part, a key part of God's story, these folks who are called by name by God through these angels, there was nothing really special about them. Zechariah, he's a pastor type, but he's got bumps and warts in his own FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mary and Joseph, two, just two teenage kids from, from Nazareth, just trying to get their acts together to figure it all out. The shepherds probably considered... Um, the lower end of the social ladder, right there with sinners and tax collectors. These folks hadn't earned anything deserved deserve their calling. They were just called and chosen by God. Just like we are called and chosen by God. God calls us by name and tells us the same thing. Randy, Sharon, Howie, Mona, James, Big Al from Florida, do not be afraid. Terry, Mary Ann, Chuck, Susan, do not be afraid. I want to close with this story, and it's from the final scene in the first episode of The Chosen. Mary of Magdala has stepped away from the edge of the cliff physically, but she's still on the edge emotionally mentally, spiritually. Mary heads back to her friend, the barkeep, the one who has told her that he would go to hell and back with her to help her. He's the only one who seems to care. And the friend asks, are you any better? Mary, are you any better? She says, no, no change. And Mary at Magdala points to the jug of some bad stuff behind the bar, some type of alcohol, I'm guessing 150 proof. I need that, she says, and I need a lot of it. The barkeep says, no, it won't help. 
He knows, knows this stuff will dull the pain, but it won't make it go away. My good friend, care pastor friend, Mary Ellen Blatford, she reminds me often when we go through painful times, you numb the dark, you'll numb the light as well. You numb the dark, and you'll numb the light as well. Face the pain. It's the only way to go through it. With God's help, it is the only way to go through it. Mary Magdalene, she begs her friend to give her that drink, please, and he reluctantly pours her a mug full. And that's when Jesus appears. Jesus comes up beside her, puts his hand over Mary's hand that holds the mug. And Mary at first thinks this is just another guy wanting something from her. And Jesus gently tells her, this is not for you. This drink, this stuff she's about to drink, this is, this is not the way. And Mary of Magdala, she pulls away. She runs from the place and stumbles into the outside alley. She looks back and Jesus is following her into the street. Leave me alone, Mary yells at Jesus. Leave me alone. Then with all authority from heaven and earth, with all love from heaven above, Jesus calls her by name. Jesus calls her by name. Mary, Mary of Magdala. Mary stops. She stops dead in her tracks, and she slowly turns, turns around. Who are you? How do you know my name? And then Jesus, walking slowly towards her, quotes the scripture that she has recited since she was a little girl when, with her father when she was so scared. Thus says the Lord, who created you, and he who formed you, fear not, do not be afraid. For I have redeemed you, I have called you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And Mary of Magdalene, with all her stuff, with all her brokenness, with all her demons, just like us, Mary Magdalene buries her head in Jesus' chest and embraces the gift of being redeemed and called by name. In the arms of Jesus, she is rescued and restored. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Let's bow our heads and I'll pray us into communion. Hey, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this story and these stories, the gospel stories, the chosen stories. And Lord, I pray that at some level we can all relate to Mary Magdala, that uh, we have... We have run away. We have tried to escape. We've tried to escape your calling for us. Bump sports and all, you call to us. And you tell us, fear not, for you've redeemed us. You've called us by name, and we are yours. Lord, I just pray that uh, as we enter into communion now, that we will embrace the gift, the gift of your love, the gift of your sacrifice, the gift of your calling, what that is for each of us. Pray these things. In your son Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um,